Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's program, addressing the disturbing increase in heroin and opioid use. We've seen uh, heroin deaths quadruple over just the past 10 years, and most of that is really within the past just several years. Interestingly, in Onondaga County, we find that we have some of the highest rates of opioid deaths in the country. Plus, if you want to buy organic, how are your fresh food dollars best spent? If you're trying to make the choices in the the grocery store or the farmer's market, there's some fruits and vegetables that have higher pesticide residues on them. Some things like berries, it's harder to scrub really rigorously to get any residues off without compromising the fruit. And a thoracic surgeon focuses on thoracic cancer prevention and treatment. All that and a poignant piece from our healing muse, all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, organic foods are much more expensive, so what's the healthy bottom line when it comes to buying them for your family? And we'll explore what it's like to be a thoracic surgeon today. But first, an update on the heroin epidemic sweeping the country and here at home. Well, New York's success in curbing the abuse of prescription opioid drugs has a dark side. A dangerous resurgence of heroin is a cheaper, more widely available, and deadlier substitute. The growing crisis of heroin has hit New York with a vengeance. And here with more on all of this is Dr. Ross Sullivan. He's the director of the Medical Toxicology Consultation Service and assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Sullivan. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. So heroin is on the rise in central New York and in the country in general, and the statistics are staggering. Tell me about that. Yeah, we're seeing a very scary uh, rise in heroin, um, not just locally, but nationally. Um, we've actually, it's been slowly increasing since the early 2000s, I think, as in general, pain pill use has also been increasing. But over the past several years, we've seen a real um, increase in of heroin uh, use and heroin death. Uh, we've seen uh, heroin um, deaths quadruple over just the past 10 years, um, and most of that is really within the past just several years. Interestingly, in Onondaga County, we find that we have some of the highest rates of opioid deaths in the country. And when I say opioids, you know, I'm talking about a family of, um, of drugs, which include pain pills, which are opioids or opiates, um, hydrocodone, oxycodone, methadone, and then I'm also including heroin. Um, yeah, so- not many people understand that often the term opioid is often is most commonly thought of as a prescription pain medication that you would get for ha- perhaps from your doctor or take from a family member. But heroin is within that same family of drugs. Absolutely right. Hence, people seek that as an alternative, a cheaper and more available alternative. Absolutely. Um, so just a little medical history in a way is that you know, we always hear about opium, and you know, opium is used uh, to make morphine, or morphine, I should say, is in is in poppies, which is where opium comes from. And uh, heroin actually uh, was invented in the late 1890s by the Bayer Company, believe it or not, to combat morphine addiction and to be used for pain. So we actually have a long history of heroin use in this country that dates back greater than 100 years. So and this medical is, use. And medical use. And physicians actually prescribed heroin up until the 1920s when we found that perhaps it was even more dangerous than morphine. Heroin in your body turns into morphine very rapidly, but it enters your brain much faster and quicker than morphine does, which is why uh, heroin causes such high rates of addiction and abuse. It goes into your brain very quickly and causes euphoria and therefore down the line of addiction. But it's not just a psychological addiction. There really is a physiological addiction very quickly to heroin. Yes, absolutely. And to other opi- opioid drugs yes. as well. All opioid drugs and heroin all work within the body in the same degree. Um, some more so than others. Heroin may go into the brain a little bit faster, may cause more euphoria. But over time, all these drugs 
hydrocodone, oxycodone, heroin, they all work in the body the same way. Well, there's a, a, a clearly a new recognition nationwide um, to try to control the numbers of prescription drugs that are being offered to patients. I mean, New York State has its iStop program. I know throughout the country there's a recognition that doctors should not be, you know, pain uh, mills handing out these kinds of drug prescriptions because it causes addiction and then leading to this kind of illicit addiction or, you know, going for these street drugs like heroin. Go ahead. Absolutely. You know, in the 1990s, um, there was a great emphasis on taking care of patients' pain, and we actually refer that as to the fifth vital sign. Um, So actually, um, the Joint Commission, which is a group that basically credentials hospitals and physicians, um, said that physicians weren't taking care of pain well enough. Um, It's almost like the pendulum swung too far. And um, unfortunately, as a result, um, opioid pain medications, hydrocodone, oxycodone, and so on and so forth, um, became uh, very popular prescriptions because indeed it, uh, it did take patients away, uh, patients' pain away. Um, however, unknowingly, over the past 10, 15, 20 years, uh, we've been ca- causing a, a group of people to become addicted. Certainly was- not every person who uses an opioid pain medication is addicted or becomes addicted, um, but we do know that this is what has led to the heroin crisis now. More specifically, as you mentioned, uh, we have initiated iStop, which has been a great success, in fact. And that's New York State. And that's a New York State, um, but most states now do have, or a lot of states, have an online type of prescription system where they can look and see what prescriptions a patient is getting. So that they're not perhaps getting them illicitly and then selling the drug or doing other things with the drug. Exactly, or just doctor shopping and getting multiple prescriptions. What we found out, though, is as a result of us stopping the amount of pills that people are taking or the amount of pills that are on the street to sell, this has now caused the heroin people or the heroin drug dealers to really move into the market. And this is what's so scary now, is that we're seeing heroin now that is purer than ever. We're seeing heroin that is cheaper than ever. And we're seeing it cut with very dangerous things, cut meaning other substances in it. Yeah, like... You mentioned earlier on this fentanyl, which is another type of opioid, and that's being laced into heroin? Absolutely. And what does that do? Sure. So fentanyl is a very powerful pain medication we use in the hospital. Um, We use it in the emergency department for very serious injuries or in the operating room. Fentanyl has 100 times the potency of morphine and 40 to 50 times the potency of heroin. So when we use it in the hospital, we use very, very, very small amounts of it. But now we're finding that this drug, fentanyl, is actually now laced into our heroin. Um, What is it? Why is it in there? Probably various reasons. Uh, Number one, it probably gets you higher. Probably, it definitely does. They have heroin and fentanyl in something. can cause, obviously, a pretty big high. And also, it lasts longer than heroin. You know, so drug users are getting smarter. They're trying to get higher. Drug makers are getting smarter. And they're trying to really, really uh, grasp the vulnerability uh, of the people. So does this also increase the addiction rate and does it also uh, increase the death from overdose? You know, the fentanyl in the heroin, I don't know if it increases the addiction rate because these are already people addicted, most likely, who are using these things. Um, we do believe um, that fentanyl indeed is increasing the death rate. Um, we are, you know, can't at liberty just talk about a lot of these things, but you know, even when we talk to our, our counterparts at the medical examiner's office and law enforcement, we do know that fentanyl uh, is contributory to a, a lot of these heroin deaths. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with toxicologist and emergency physician Dr. Ross Sullivan. We're talking about the heroin epidemic and crisis, not only in New York State but throughout the country. So, what? What happens when someone comes to the emergency room with an overdose because this is happening you know, more and more frequently? What do you do? Well, this is a great question. Um, and this is where I think things are hopefully starting to change. Traditionally, when people came in with um, heroin or opioid overdoses, and we'll keep them all together, but heroin as well, uh, they would come in and sometimes if they're not breathing, which is something that happens when you take too much of this drug, which can easily happen in an overdose situation, uh, we would give them Narcan or naloxone. And that's a n- relatively new phenomenon, isn't it? Well, drug- Narcan naloxone has actually been around quite for quite some time. Um, I think its availability in the public sector is probably new. Um, in the hospital, we've been using it for decades and decades. And, and what does it do? It actually blocks the, um, the receptors, the areas uh, in the brain and the body where the heroin and the opioids bind to. And 
when these opioids and heroin bind to these areas with if there's too much of it it can cause a decrease in breathing or actually stopping breathing um, this narcan and naloxone will actually block those receptor areas from the opioids getting to that area um, and in doing so may even cause some of the drug to come out of the brain out of the receptors and they start breathing again. It, can, it saves so lives. So it's an antidote. We use it, we'll say an antidote, sure. Yep. But it doesn't in any way cure the problem. It, it, I mean, it prevents death from overdose at that moment in time, but it does nothing to the addiction. Absolutely correct. Yep, they will work that in that one time, and they will do nothing long term. So then what do you do? You give them the Narcan, yep. and then what? Well, we try to, well, we have to we'll observe them for some time, and sometimes they need more medical attention than just giving them Narcan. Um, you know, Historically, all patients, you know, due to a lack of um, resources, you know, we would discuss what we would know about in terms of help, um, which oftentimes in hospitals, very little. Uh, if, you, if you have a hospital that does not have detox services, um, there's really not much you can do other than, you know, offer them a name and number and address of places where they, you know, where they can get help. There's been a lot of talk lately, and I'm curious about your perspective on this, about the fact that hospitals really can't offer an inpatient bed and can't admit patients who are experiencing, let's say, detox or trying to, you know, get off of this stuff. Sure. And so they're really, they're really out on their own. And that there's been talk as well that there isn't enough funds, there aren't enough sure. support funds for, um, you know, places to go to detox sure. and to, you know, rehabilitate yeah. yourself. Right. You know, in hospitals, you know, most of the times we, had, you know, we try to admit people who um, have life-threatening things. Obviously, an opioid overdose is life-threatening. Um, and historically, opioid withdrawal has been viewed as a non-life-threatening occurrence. It's uh, something that's very uncomfortable, and, and people become very, very sick, um, but not life-threatening. Um, I think, you know, I can't really speak for, you know, the healthcare insurance world, but I think part of it was, is perhaps, you know, the people not getting admitted because, well, they weren't going to die from it. And I also think that, I hate to say this, but I think a lot of, um, a lot of uh, physician um, what, what I'm trying to say, the way they feel personally maybe about the subject historically, I think also played a role. And I think that um, historically it wasn't viewed as, a, as an illness. You know, addiction's an illness. You know, this isn't, you, people don't wake up one day and say, I'm going to be an addict and throw everything away. You know, it is an illness. It's a chronic disease. And you're saying prior to this, people really saw it as a personal weakness. I think so. You know, and, um, and I think that that also plays a role into the amount of help that this demographic of people get. But today we really do need more and more rehab centers. And that I think the president recently has yes. gone to a conference to recognize yep. the need for this because of the widespread numbers of addicted people exactly that we right. have. I think what we're learning is what we've been doing isn't good enough. It's The problem is getting worse. Um, and it's not the, the huddled masses and poor anymore. It is, we know for a fact now, it's the white middle class. It's people with insurance. It's people with jobs and families who are turning to heroin. Um, and the traditional way we've been trying to take care of these people, which is not very good, um, is not working. And we need more money. We need more funds. We need more people. And But all that starts with more understanding of the issue. Um, and that's, I think, what you know President Obama and some of his other gov local governments are trying to accomplish. So what would you recommend to people who might, know someone, either a family member or someone in their lives, who currently is having this problem? I mean, what, what do you say to them? What would you say to them? And this is the hardest, this is the hardest question to answer. Um, you know, who do you call? You know, um, we do know that there's um, state hotlines that you can call. Um, we do know now that uh, coming to hospitals now locally, that things are being put in place now to help get these people to areas. Uh, I always start to, to rehab centers. To rehab centers or to detox areas. And these aren't things I'm, you know, that aren't perfectly ironed out yet. Um, but these are things now that are in the limelight uh, that are starting to come to fruition. You have to talk to your doctor. Um, you have to talk and call some of the, uh, the hotlines. And sometimes I tell parents, you have to just get down and dirty and get to the phone book. And you just have to make call after call after call. Help is not sometimes going to find you for this. You really have to go out and find the help. And it is there. There are unbelievable places around here that do detox and rehabilitation. Um, we have things within Upstate Hospital as well and people here who do it. Um, but it's very, it is hard to find. But, but in terms of the educational approach yeah. that's going on, obviously not everyone is a youthful person, but I, I would think a lot of, a lot of these people are 
of the younger demographic sure. who are addicted. I mean, is there anything that you know of in the little bit of time we have left that's going on within New York State or even locally mm -hmm. to try to educate kids as to how serious an addiction to heroin can Absolutely. be? You know, um, being affiliated with the Poison Control Center, you know, we have uh, quite a bit of initiatives now where uh, we have educators going out to schools um, I myself have met with uh, high school nurses and principals, so we're trying to get out to the schools locally. Um, we're trying to, uh, we're in the process of establishing a website where, you know, all drug-related information can be in one website that's easy to get to for people to go to and educate themselves on this. How do people contact the Poison Control Center if they want to right now? Well, they Is can it a 1-800 call... number? It's one eight hundred. I think two 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 two. All right, it's one two two. I think it's two 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 one two two two. We'll have a link. Know. We'll have yeah, a link no, on I don't our even website. Know. And I do work there. I promise you that. But sometimes I do forget the number. That's okay. Um, but the, even that would be a great resource to start with. I want to thank you very much for coming in and sharing all this with us. It is clearly a, a national problem and a local problem, and something we all really need to understand, take stock of, and try to see some change, make some change. Thanks so much. Yep. My guest has been Dr. Ross Sullivan. He's the director of the Medical Toxicology Consultation Service and assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Upstate Medical University. Coming up next, we know they cost more, but are organic foods really healthier? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Well, with summer and the growing season up ahead, there are so many opportunities to eat fresh and local fruits and vegetables. And farmers markets have been sprouting up all over the place in many communities here in central New York. But how important is it to make these choices organic ones? Joining us with some expert advice as how to make the most of the season's bounty is Kristen Davis. She's a registered dietitian nutritionist at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Kristen. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. So first, you know, we all keep hearing how important it is to add fruits and vegetables to our diets, regardless of the season. But as the fresh and local produce become more available, what in general do you recommend to your patients or your clients in terms of how to round out their plates? Right, so um, you mentioned uh, fresh, which is um, something we love to see in fruits and vegetables. Fresh means more nutrients. Um, and we always recommend to make your half your plate fruits and vegetables at every meal if you can, um, fruits and vegetables for snacks. Eat the colors of the rainbow, which is easy to do with fruits and vegetables. So those are generally... Yeah, I read somewhere that was a very nice kind of little tip, this whole idea of eat, eat in technicolor. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. as many colors as you can put on your plate is a good kind of index of how varied the nutrients are. Right, right. Yeah, the darker the greens, the brighter the berries, things like that. But, you know, um, basically, is local an important feature as well? Because that's been a big kind of clarion cry of late, you know, eat local, eat fresh. Is local that important? And it can why? be. Um, part of what's great about eating local is that it doesn't have to travel so far. So freshness is, you know, of the essence with local food. So if it's just coming from Baldwinsville, <clears throat> that's you know, so much less than it has to travel than coming from California. Um, when you're shopping at a farmer's market, something like that, you get the chance to talk with the farmer to find out how it's grown and, um, you know, maybe some tips on pre preparation, things like that. So those are the great things about eating local. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so the question keeps coming up, obviously, this whole idea of organic. You know, which which of when we're talking fruits and vegetables first because we're going to get to some of the other food groups afterwards what are the things to keep in mind when we talk about eating organic fruits and vegetables which are the important ones to so, remember and why um eating organic is great there's many benefits to eating organic both on the environmental side and on the health side um as far as environmental side you know some research has shown that there's a lot less contamination in waterways and, and pesticide runoff. Um, it's beneficial for farmers that they're being exposed to less. Um, 
But health-wise, there is still definitely more research needed. Um, We know that we're not being exposed to as many pesticides eating organic, um, but it is common for people, if they want to eat organic, to avoid fruits and vegetables because of the cost. So, you know. So the cost really is kind of a driver of people's buying habits, obviously. So what you're suggesting is it's not really hype. You know, I mean, I think... In the beginning, there was a lot of question, is this a lot of hype, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. organic, organic, or is there really some benefit? And what you're suggesting is, in terms of the nutrient quality, that shouldn't change so much, but perhaps the negative aspects of taking in pesticides could have some negative effects. Although, is it a proven fact, I guess is the question. Is there research to support that? There is some research, but there's definitely more needed. As far as nutrients go, there has been some research that um, antioxidants and phytochemicals can be higher in organically grown fruits and vegetables, which those are the ones we always talk about, cancer fighting and and things like that. Um, But there definitely is is more research needed. This is new, so. Yeah, I noted that the Environmental Working Group, which is a well-known organization, every year lists what they call the Dirty Dozen or the clean 15 when Mm -hmm. it comes to fruits and vegetables. And the dirty dozen being, well, why don't you explain it? What what exactly are they looking at when they say, I don't mean give me a list of what they are, but let's talk about what the kinds of fruits and vegetables that could fit into that category, and why do they call them the dirty dozen? Right, so there's some fruits and vegetables that have higher pesticide residues on them, um, so that you may be... Uh, exposed to less if you're buying organic that way. And then there's other fruits and vegetables that the pesticide residue is is relatively low, um, so it may not be necessarily worth the extra cost. So they basically test fruits and vegetables every year and determine how many uh, uh, res- you know, have pesticide residue on them even after they're basically prepared for the marketplace. They do, yeah. The USDA and the EPA, as well as the Food and Drug Administration, um, they all monitor pesticide residues on fruits and vegetables, so even between organic and non-organic. What is being... the characteristic that most characterizes the difference? I mean, I happen to note that things like apples, peaches, nectarines, strawberries, grapes, celery, spinach, is a whole list, sweet bell peppers, cucumbers, cherry tomatoes, a lot of those are on that dirty dozen list. Mm-hmm. Does that suggest that you it's the kind of fruit or vegetable that you eat the entire thing? It does. Yep, that's exactly it. So you're going to eat the whole thing. Um, some things like berries, it's harder to scrub really rigorously to get any residues off without compromising the fruit. So um, yeah, something like an apple where you definitely want to eat the peel um, and for all the fiber and all the sure, nutrients, right? A potato anything. or something like that. Yeah. Um, whereas versus a banana or a pineapple, where you're not going to eat the exterior. Um, so, do you think that those are, I mean, important to pay attention to the to that kind of rating system? And if so, I mean, I know people can go on the Environmental Working Group website and get a list of what the current ones are. I do. I think that if you're trying to make the choices in the, in the grocery store or the farmer's market, um, maybe, you know, it's difficult to afford an entirely organic diet. So if you're trying to make some small changes, I think that's a great a great way to do it. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with registered dietitian, nutritionist Kristen Davis. We're talking about the truth about organic foods. So um, the key findings, the basic concept here is that if possible, as you said, and if it's affordable to make some slight changes in your fruits and vegetables, keep in mind the ones that might be the quote-unquote dirtiest Mm -hmm. and try to buy those organic Yeah. versus the so-called clean ones, you perhaps could go either way. Is that correct? Right. I mean, you could buy the standard bananas or the standard product. um, What's another one? Pineapples, as you said. Sure, oranges, something Mm -hmm. that you're going to take the peel off. So how do we know that this label organic is true, though, in terms of whether it's produced commercially or from a local grower? I mean, how rigorous are the standards? Um, If something has the USDA organic label on it, the standards are extremely rigorous. They require three years of organic growing um, to ensure that there's no pesticides on the farm at all. Um, They require organic seeds, uh, things like that. Um, as far as 
um, animal products, no antibiotics. Um, but there are many farmers that that label is very expensive. So there are many farmers who are practicing organic farming without the label. So um, if you want 100% true organic, going with the USD label, USDA label is a good idea. Um, but if you're buying local at the, your farmer's market, you can ask your farmer and see how they, they actually practice their So growing. in some ways, it can often be a matter of trust sure. as well. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Unless you have you know, uh, evidence to the fact that a particular local grower is only growing organic. Right, right. So some of it is a matter of trust. Um, let's talk about meats, because mm -hmm. we just did fruits and vegetables. What constitutes organic meat? Organic meat, um, the animals are fed organic, uh, in a, on an organic diet. Um, they're allowed to forage um, in an organic pasture. Um, they're not, so they can range. Sure. They're yep. not kept in pens and just fed corn. Right, right, exactly. Yep. Um, they're not treated with antibiotics unless absolutely medically necessary. Um, and, it, and if they are in that case, they're not allowed to use the organic label on that specific piece of meat. Are there clear health benefits, though, much like we talked about the fruits and vegetables? Are there documented health benefits from eating organic meats as opposed to the standard kind? Sure. So evidence, um, again, still needs more research, but some early evidence has shown that uh, organically grown meats um, and dairy products are higher in omega-3 fatty acids, um, and that's believed to be because of the organic diet that they're on um, is more nutritious. So when you say an organic diet, what are they eating? Are they eating fruits and vegetables that are organic or grains that are organically grown? Right, yeah. So grains, grass, um, anything that would be natural to them, um, but a little bit more varied than maybe your conventional farm. How about eggs? Is it important to look for organic eggs, and if so, why? Organic eggs um, have also shown to be a little bit higher in organic or omega-3 fatty acids. Um, but as far as other nutrients, there isn't a whole lot of research um, that's been solid with the findings of, of eggs. But how about the notion of, you know, the idea of cage-free, I mean, versus caged? Do we, I know it's an issue of cruelty, perhaps, mm -hmm. to the animal, but also do we know that if it's non-organic, that there are pesticides that get transmitted into the egg? I mean, is there that same problem as that exists with fruits and vegetables? Um, there's a lot of controversy over over the poultry with with that. Um, again, like you mentioned, um, the the humane raising of the chickens I know is important to many people. Um, so that's a reason why people might want to buy uh, organically raised eggs. Um, but as far as some people find that the cages might be more sanitary than some others, um, there has been found with meats that there's actually more bacteria on organically grown meats. Um, it just happens to be less antibiotic resistant. So there's a give and take there, definitely, and, and um, there definitely needs to be more research. That's a very interesting concept, that it may not actually be cleaner, it may actually be dirtier, but you don't have this notion of, because they've been given so many antibiotics, that you are taking in the potential for developing resistance yourself. Right, right. So that's where food safety certainly comes in, too. You want to make sure your eggs are cooked to the proper temperature, make sure your meats are cooked to the proper temperature, that you're practicing good hand hygiene, because whether it's organic or not, the bacteria is definitely there. How about the dairy products, then, when you talk about it? Are they all equally affected? In other words, well, what constitutes organic dairy? Let's just give me an overview. What makes organic milk Organic. Mm -hmm. um, or that's the same same as the meats. Um, they're fed the same diet. Um, no antibiotics. Um, again, unless medically necessary for the for the animal. Um, and the same findings have been found with the dairy as far as the omega three fatty acids. Um, other nutrients. There's they're still doing more research with with other nutrients, but those are those are what's been found. So you have the balance of perhaps a little bit better nutritive value with the higher numbers or the higher level of omega-3s, which mm -hmm. are heart healthy mm -hmm. and all of that. And you also have the reduction in the idea of antibiotic resistance or pesticides, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But you also have the expense, and people have to weigh all of that. At this point, other than the omega-3s, do we absolutely know that you're going to be healthier and you will avoid disease by eating 
or, uh, organic dairy, for example? We don't, but we do know that including all of these foods in our in a balanced diet will make us healthy. So I think that's a, a personal decision that people have to make um, if it's feasible for them um, to want to obtain those extra health benefits that may be available with the organic products um, or if they just want to have the balanced diet, which is we know is important. So, so in the very little bit of time we have left, What's the bottom line? If you have, if, if cost is obviously a factor, which it must be for most people, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what would you recommend overall in terms of hitting that perfect spot? Right, that's a tough question. Um, I think that making sure first and foremost that your your diet is balanced, that you're including five to nine servings of fruits and vegetables, um, whole grains, low-fat dairy if that's something that you can do in your diet, um, meats if that's something that you include, um, other sources of protein, beans, and things like that. And if you're able to, um, looking at things like the Dirty Dozen um, and and, go, and going local routes with fruits and vegetables so that you can be the most informed consumer with your diet. Great advice. Thank you so very much for coming in. My guest has been Kristen Davis. She's a registered dietitian nutritionist at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Next up, the life of a thoracic surgeon today. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen along with you. Lung cancer. It's the leading cancer killer in both men and women in the United States. An estimated 158,000 Americans are expected to die from lung cancer annually, accounting for approximately 27% of all cancer deaths. Here with more on this debilitating disease, its screening, prevention, and treatment is Dr. Jason Wallen. He's Assistant Professor of Surgery specializing in thoracic surgery at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Wallen. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Linda. So since lung cancer is a silent disease, often until it gets so advanced that it can be fatal, what are some of the current recommendations with regard to screening to prevent this disease? Well, the current recommendations for screening uh, are mostly for high-risk patients, which are patients who have a heavy smoking history and patients who are uh, ranging in ages from their mid-50s until their late 70s, uh, is to receive annual low-dose uh, screening CT scans. And that's uh, a low-radiation dose uh, X-ray that patients can uh, obtain that will help us find uh, cancers hopefully early and uh, it's been shown that overall when you screen a population that you can reduce, reduce the chances of dying from a lung cancer by 20% in patients who actually go through the screening program. And that's a pretty new recommendation. I think at one point people would say that lung cancer was such a killer because being silent until it was so advanced there was no way to really combat it. There was no way, and we didn't have a good way to find it early before this. One of the important things when you're looking at screening a population is that you can actually change the mortality across a population rather than on an individual patient basis. And so this is the first time that we've had exciting news like that. There are some challenges to it, though, things like false positives. Talk a little bit about that. What, what happens in that case? So that is a very challenging uh, part of the screening program. In fact, the vast majority of the abnormal findings on these CT scans never needed to be found at all. Uh, there are many benign nodules uh, and other things that we can find in people's lungs. And unfortunately, this does have a tendency to increase the number of procedures that patients undergo trying to work up and diagnose these uh, other quote-unquote incidental findings. And sometimes they can end up 
with perhaps non-positive results afterwards. Am I right? You can, and you can. Uh, anytime we do procedures, there are potential downsides such as complications, and so it's important to have uh, a group of sophisticated people looking at those CAT scans and determining what really needs further workup, what can be watched, and and what things might need a biopsy or even an operation to further investigate. So some of these, some of this rests in the hands of sophisticated radiologists, perhaps knowing what they're looking at, and that's probably a, a skill set that develops over time since they've just begun to really do this large large scale. There are, and there are uh, scales uh, that radiologists use that have been relatively well established to determine what the risk uh, of a specific lesion is. Some institutions like Upstate have a, a multidisciplinary group that review these studies, and so uh, we tend to get a number of opinions on a given abnormal finding uh, all at one time, and I think that can be very helpful. Yeah, giving you kind of a lot of people's input and hopefully the correct the correct answer. Yep. So what are, just in general, when you would say to people, um, give them advice about prevention for lung cancer, what are, what are the key points to remember? It's pretty simple. The most important thing you can do is to stop smoking. Um, and uh, I think the take-home message for stopping smoking is you don't have to do it by yourself. Uh, these days we have a tremendous amount of help available uh, because uh, tobacco and nicotine is the most addictive substance on the planet. It is difficult, and I think that patients should not feel guilty about the fact that they have a hard time uh, doing that. Everybody has a hard time uh, quitting smoking. And so whether you choose to do it alone, you should know that there's help available, and there are a lot of good treatments that are uh, very different than even they were five years ago. So there are good smoking cessation plans, and as you said, patches and all kinds of things that... Gums and lozenges and sprays, um, many different ways that people can uh, effectively quit smoking. So, but when it comes to treatment, whether it's obviously... It's a little different when it's found early versus found late, but let's talk about the different aspects of treatment. What's kind of foremost treatment you as a thoracic surgeon? Is surgery really still the, the kind of first line of defense? Well, as you mentioned, the most important thing to determine if you're talking about treatment is what is the stage of the cancer. And obviously, we want to find these things early, and that's what the screening program really does. It allows us to find these cancers at an earlier stage where we can actually make a difference. When you're talking about early-stage cancers, uh, the gold standard is still surgery. Uh, these days, more and more, we're moving towards minimally invasive operations where we can remove even fairly complicated cancers through very small incisions and get patients out of the hospital very quickly. As uh, many of our listeners will have heard, there are other treatment options that are becoming more and more advanced and more and more effective as time goes on. Things like stereotactic radiosurgery, where we use very focused beams of radiation treatment to treat the cancer while it's still in the patient. Uh, we don't know for sure if it's as good as surgery or not, but it does seem to be very effective, and especially for patients who are potentially... Uh, too ill to undergo an operation or to consider removing part of their lung, uh, that can be a great option. Uh, we also have treatments available uh, where we can place a needle into the tumor, sometimes even at the time that it's biopsied, and the tumor can be either heated up to what we call a kill temperature or frozen uh, in position. And although that's slightly more invasive than radiation, it can be done in a single treatment. Uh, and those also seem to be very effective. But for now, surgery and actually removing the cancer is the gold standard for early stage treatment. And usually does it still require um, a round of chemotherapy and backup radiation, or is it pretty much on a case-by-case -case basis? It, it, it all comes back to stage. So if there are other things that are involved... Help like, us understand, when you talk stage, just review for us, has to do with how far it's spread, perhaps? Explain that. So most cancers are staged one through four. Stage one cancers are generally ones that are limited just to the area where the cancer began. Stage four cancers are one that is ones that are spread to other parts of the body. And then there are things like stage two and three, which maybe are bigger tumors or tumors that have lymph node involvement. And so as you progress through the stages, especially as cancers start to show evidence that they can spread, you start wanting to add things like chemotherapy uh, and, and as well radiation. So depending on the stage of the tumor, we may add those treatments and in, as you get more advanced stages surgery becomes less important for example a cancer that is spread to other parts of the body it may not be so helpful to remove the cancer where it started if it's already in other areas you might want a treatment like chemotherapy that can travel through the whole body and treat wherever the cancer 
may have spread to. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with thoracic surgeon Dr. Jason Wallen. We're talking about lung cancer prevention and treatment. So there is this new, you know, it's pretty new now, this whole talk of immunotherapy or targeted therapy. What's happening on that front with regard to lung cancer? So there are certain types of cancers uh, certain types of lung cancers that have uh, features that we can target with specific drugs that modify the immune system's ability to respond to those cancers. It doesn't work on every type of lung cancer, and even the types of lung cancers uh, that are could be susceptible require special testing to prove that. And these drugs are not given to everybody with lung cancer. These are still limited mostly to patients who would be receiving some type of drug therapy for their cancer anyway. For example, an early stage lung cancer patient who is going to have an operation probably would never get any type of drug therapy because they haven't been shown to be effective and change the outcome. But they're they're still up in the process of developing these kinds of targeted therapies. Am I correct? It e- seems like every day. Every day, new drugs are coming out for wide varieties of cancers, not just lung cancers. So it's a very exciting uh, new field of treatment expansion. Especially because it's getting the one's own immune system to really kind of be revved up to fight the cancer. That's nice. It, it does seem that these drugs uh, are a little bit less toxic than kind of traditional chemotherapy. The other nice feature about them is they're usually available in a pill form. And so they don't require coming into the hospital, having injections or any kind of devices injected into the patient's body. Yeah, that makes a big difference. It sounds like on a lot of different fronts, there's a lot of effort to minimize some of the um, extreme extreme effects or negative consequences of some kind of open radical types of surgeries and everything is is it or or radical kinds of chemotherapy that has more of a shotgun approach where you're killing many many types of cells. Everything is trying to get more targeted and minimally invasive. In general, it sounds like. We are, and I think in the last 10 years, uh, we've been more successful uh, in lung cancer care than we have in the in the previous 50. I think it's been a very exciting time in lung cancer treatment, and patients who have known other people who've been treated for lung cancer in the past, uh, potentially who had bad experiences, they shouldn't expect that those experiences would be similar to theirs, because much, much has changed, whether you're talking about surgery, chemotherapy, or radiation. It's not the same as it was 10 years ago. It's not the same as it was five years ago. That's very heartening. It's a new frontier. So what are some of the other types of cancer as a thoracic surgeon that you see and treat? The other most common type of cancer that I treat as a thoracic surgeon is esophageal cancer. There are other cancers that are in the chest as well and are are much, much rarer and unusual. But the two main groups are lung cancer and esophageal cancer. And how common is esophageal cancer? Esophageal cancer is on the rise, um, and there's been a lot more publicity lately, but it's still considered a relatively rare cancer. Patients who do have it, it actually becomes very difficult to diagnose it because it's not something physicians are typically thinking about because it's such an unusual tumor. Why does it occur? Do we know what causes it? There are two types of esophageal cancer. Uh, There are patients who have uh, what is now the most common esophageal cancer in the United States, which is adenocarcinoma. And we don't know exactly what causes it, but we know there are two things that do tend to increase patients' risk of that. One is being overweight, and the other one is having a long history of gastroesophageal reflux disease. Obviously, those are very common problems uh, in the United States right now. And so uh, we don't go looking at every patient who's overweight or who has gastroesophageal reflux disease to see if they have this rare cancer. But for now, it's all we know that does predispose patients. Then there's also squamous cell cancers of the esophagus, which tend to be related to alcohol consumption and tobacco abuse. So again, quitting smoking is always a good idea. Sounds like for everything, quitting Mm -hmm. smoking is a great idea. So what types of treatment are available then? What do you do for an esophageal cancer? And again, it must depend on the stage. It absolutely does depend on the stage. And unlike lung cancer, we don't have a good way to screen for esophageal cancer. We don't know what are the things to look for that are actually going to help us to find these uh, these tumors. They do require some invasive tests to find them, and so you don't want to be doing it for everybody. So that makes it difficult to find these things at an early stage. So is it the same uh, issue as, it, as is with lung cancer that 
you it's kind of silent until it's more advanced. That's absolutely right. Esophageal cancers have to be quite large before they start causing problems. Typically, patients present with difficulty swallowing, and usually by a time a tumor is large enough to stop uh, a patient swallowing or make it difficult to swallow, there oftentimes are lymph nodes involved, and there can be evidence the cancer is spread already. The other thing that makes it difficult to treat esophageal cancers is they tend not to respond very well to chemotherapy and radiation. And so when patients present beyond the point where we can remove the tumors, it becomes very difficult to treat them. But so then clearly surgery is the mainstay of treatment. It is the mainstay, um, but almost invariably we have to treat patients with what we call trimodal therapy. It's combinations of chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery. And almost invariably patients need to have chemotherapy and radiation before they get an operation, mostly in those patients who are presenting with relatively uh, what we call advanced disease. Occasionally we do find patients with early stage disease. We always find those by accident. And those patients can Uh, be treated with surgery alone. What's the prognosis generally if you're diagnosed with esophageal cancer? It depends on stage. Again, early stage patients that are the ones that are found by accident actually do very well. Um, However, when patients present with symptoms, they're usually, like I said, large tumors and have a lymph node or two that are involved. Um, We're not a only about 40% of those patients will be curable. As you look into your crystal ball, I, I will say you're new to this community. I want to welcome you to this community. Thank you. Um, what are some of your hopes or plans for the future of cancer care, particularly thoracic care, cancer in this area, and also just in general, what do you see coming down the pike? Well, for me personally, uh, I want to bring more minimally invasive treatment options for patients with both thoracic cancers and benign uh, diseases of the chest. I think that's something that's been lacking here. Uh, for lung cancer, about 90% of our lung cancer operations are now being done through what they call band-aid incisions or a minimally invasive approach. Uh, and we have recently done upstate New York's first uh, totally minimally invasive uh, esophageal cancer operation. Operation. Uh, for that particular operation, we used uh, the assistance of the Da Vinci robotic system, uh, which allows us to, again, do the entire operation through Band-Aid incisions, and uh, patients uh, can leave the hospital in sometimes half the time uh, that they would stay in the hospital with a conventional operation. And without all the potential side effects also or, or difficulties in terms of healing and problems. Still a big operation uh, on the inside, uh, and complication rates are are high, but uh, patients do tend to recover faster and, uh, and, and they do better overall. Very exciting. Well, I want to thank you so much. It's very exciting, very heartening news for both lung cancer and esophageal, and welcome to our community. My guest has been uh, Dr. Jason Wallen. He's assistant professor of surgery specializing in thoracic surgery at Upstate Medical University. of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Oncologists are physicians who specialize in the treatment of cancer. They are often asked how they manage to stay connected to their patients and remain optimistic when every day means helping patients and families cope with difficult diagnoses. Radiation oncologist Dr. Robin Schoenthaler who practices at Mass General Hospital in Massachusetts, offers us her answer in her essay, O Night Divine on the Cancer Unit. Here is a brief excerpt from that essay. This is how it happens. I am picking through produce at the grocery store late in the evening, and my cell phone screeches so loudly that people look over and watch while I fumble to find it and hush its ringing and lift it to my ear. I brace my shoulders and answer it, and feel the dread on both ends of the line. I look like every other distracted shopper, phone pressed to ear, eyes gazing at some middle distance, perhaps debating what kind of squash to buy for dinner or whether or not we still need bread. But in fact, I am being levitated. The voice on the phone is transporting me away from the brightly lit rows of vegetables into a darker world, a horrifying universe where a cancer is growing unfettered and where an emergency room doctor is standing in front of a crowded desk, 
trying to dispassionately tell me an appalling story about a tumor causing overnight blindness or paralysis or a sudden sense of smothering in a patient who lies waiting in a bed across the room. I stand completely still and listen hard, and when I hang up, I am in exactly the same position, still clutching the bananas or the cool and fragrant peach. Cancer emergencies are usually calamitous, sometimes life-threatening, and in my first few years of practice as a radiation oncologist, these phone calls and their horrific stories unnerved me. Twenty years later, I see these calls as embarkations into a holy land. I answer the phone, murmur some reassurances, and a short time later, I am standing outside the patient's room. I have never met this person before, but soon we will be inextricably linked. I pause and hold the patient's chart close to my heart, and then I step across the threshold into a different realm of time and space. The Greeks have a word for moments like this, kairos, a time in between, a sacred time, a moment shared with the divine. Walking into a hospital room late at night, I feel as though I am walking into a temple, a sanctuary, a secret tunnel underneath the trenches. This is the stark and webbed interconnectedness between ill patient and on-call doctor. Random secretarial assignments connected to a chance mangled cell mutation, rays of light interlaced with beams of radiation, bones and nerves wired to flesh and fear, sisters and suffering shared in shadowed sanctuaries, and losses and lessons linked in hospital rooms on nights divine. Thank you for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we learn all about hydrocephalus and one family's challenge with the disease. Plus, we'll learn all about diabetes and what to do when the diet is over. If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air, that's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings-on at Upstate, you can look for us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or check out the What's Up at Upstate blog at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. <music>